All right. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> good morning. Good morning. All right. Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, and that'll be on the screen here in just a moment. Um, what we're going to be doing is we're going through, we're starting a brand new series. And uh, the brand new series is going to be kind of our, our summer series going up through August. And, uh, and the crux of the series is recognizing that when we look at the Bible, we see that there's 66 books. There's 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books. The Bible's one book, but it's made up of all of those books. And that's kind of what we call canon. Canon is these are the books that we say these have passed the test. They're accurate descriptions of who God is. They're accurate descriptions of who says that they wrote them, etc. They stand up to the test. So we see God's inspiration in the words of these books. This is canon. And they're written over hundreds of years by 40 different writers. And so any thinking person looks at that and recognizes it's no doubt that when you look from Genesis to Revelation, we see tons of unique messages within the Bible. There's things that have different personalities because there's different writers and those personalities are coming out. There's unique messages within each book. But what's uncommon, what's a shock, what's totally uncommon, and thing that makes people who, are, who study the Bible Critically and academically, the thing that, that, that's hard to figure out is that in spite, this, should, this totally makes sense if it's just written by 40 different authors. What's harder to understand is that when we look at the Bible and we study it from the beginning to the end, we see this common thread, and not just one common thread, we see several themes, and these themes are called intercanonical themes. They go through the arc of the entire Bible from the beginning to the end, and that's amazing and that's huge. And so what we're going to do this summer is we're going to take a look at each one of those themes and actually not even all of them, just taking a choice few of those themes and saying, what if we took a look at these? Because if we took a look at each one of these one word themes, these, these themes that, that can kind of explain the entire Bible, for us personally, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to look at that and say, you know what? The whole Bible's kind of daunting. I have a hard time wrapping my brain around it. But what if I had with this one word had an opportunity to unlock a meaning that if I'm in Exodus and I'm totally lost, or, or Leviticus and, I, and I'm totally confused, this could be a key that could help me understand that in relation to the rest of the Bible. Also, and when we're interacting with people that we know who also have skepticism about the Bible or questions about the Bible, these one-word themes that go from the beginning of the Bible to the end can be the starting point to help us explain it, perhaps in a more clear and understandable way. And so today, the one word theme, the, the intercanonical theme that's from the beginning of the Bible to the end, and this is a great starting point, is Jesus. Now here's the thing. If you're a thinking person, you have to say, okay, that's, that's nice, Pastor Earl, but you forgot about something. In the Old Testament, Jesus isn't there. Jesus shows up. Remember the little baby in the manger? That, that's when Jesus shows up. That's the New Testament. And honestly, the name Jesus is incredibly polarizing outside of the Bible. In our culture today, people are super squeamish about his name in the public square. Like, talk about anything. You could even say the word faith, but just don't say Jesus. Other people who don't really believe Jesus say, look, I don't believe anything in the Bible. I just, but I really love Jesus. He's awesome. He's a good teacher. Like, I think that he had some good things to say. Jesus is a good, good person, good teacher, good man. I just don't believe anything in the Bible. Even Christians, Jesus is kind of difficult for. This sentence would be a difficult thing. This question would be a difficult uh, thing for a lot of Christians to answer with Jesus. What is the Bible all about? I don't know if I can say that. 
Because again, I, I, feel com- I feel most comfortable saying that the Bible is about our sin problem and the fact that God enter- entered into history with Jesus in the New Testament. But, but honestly, I feel most comfortable in Matthew to Revelation because that's like Jesus land. I can relate to that. The Old Testament freaks me out. There's some weird stuff in there. And, and stuff that I, I don't even want to share with my friends because it's kind of embarrassing and odd. And let me just, I, it, I'm a Christian. I'm not a Jewish person. So I'm just going to camp out between Matthew and Revelation and be completely content there. Because this stuff is good. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't, I, everyone believes that. Let's go with that. We can't. And the reason we can't is because Jesus won't let us do that. And the reason that we know that Jesus won't let us do that is because of what we see in Luke chapter 24. If you've got your Bibles or if you have your Bibles on your phone, go ahead and take a look there. This is after Jesus has died on the cross and risen again. This is when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus. This is before he's completely um, come out as, as risen from the grave for, to his disciples. And he's walking with his disciples. And they, they, they're, not, they're totally oblivious to the fact that he is who he says he is. Or he's, he's kind of keeping that a secret himself. And then he starts to teach them. And he says this in verse, verse 25. He said to them, how foolish you are. Pause real quick. The reason they're so foolish is because they're incredibly bummed out. All their hopes and dreams were riding on Jesus as the one, the Messiah, and yet he died. If all of your hopes and dreams are on one person and that person is executed, if all of your hopes and dreams for, for your, your, not only, not only the, the globe's place, but your own personal place, you've put everything out on the line for this person and that person gets killed, Everything's lost. And so they're incredibly depressed. And Jesus says to them, how foolish you are and how, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. When, when um, first century Jewish people said Moses and the prophets, they're saying basically the entire Old Testament. Moses writes the first five books of the Old Testament. The prophets wrote the rest. And so Jesus, starting with everything that Moses said back in in Genesis, on to the end of of the book, uh, the end of the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus says, and that was about me. And that was about me. And that was about me. The reason we can't keep Jesus in New Testament land and be totally comfy with that, the reason that we can't just say that Jesus showed up on the scene in Bethlehem and that was it, is because he won't let us do that. In fact, when we look at the entire Bible, if we're looking at one word to describe it, one word that it's all about, the entire Bible is all about, it's about Jesus from the beginning to the end. So real briefly today, we're going to take a tour of that. We're going to interrogate that and see if that's accurate, if that's true. And if it's true, so what? What difference does that make? We're going to take a look at that. First off, let's go through before Genesis. The book of Revelation gives us a a, a glimpse into before Genesis, before the Genesis account, that Jesus was there. Jesus was before creation. In in the book of Revelation, in chapter 13, 8, it talks about those who are, are going to hell. And it's talking about those who Jesus has saved. And it talks about the fact that Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Lamb who was slain, holds on to these people, that he was preparing his redemptive mission before creation took place. So before creation, before the first tree or anything else was created, before the stars were created, before any type of photosynthesis was in, in, it came to be, before any of that, Jesus was already amping up for his mission to redeem you and me if you're in him. That's before time. That's amazing. Jesus is before creation, before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God was preparing this. 
But not only before creation, he was actually involved with creation. Not just involved, he was the creator in creation. Oftentimes, I've had this picture, like, and, and I think it's because of some of the Sunday school cartoons I've watched. But you have this, this impression of God, just kind of like as this floaty, bearded, you know, mystic uh, trees and gazelle and that type of thing, right? And, and you, have, you just got this old man going through and like making things, or this light, this just bright light, just pow, 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 and all of a sudden things start taking place. Colossians doesn't let us have that picture. Colossians says that all things were created by him, talking about Jesus, all things were created by Jesus and what? For him. So everything, all things in the original Greek there means all things, all things, all things were created by Jesus. So who was the one involved with bringing out of darkness light? Who? Jesus. Who was the one who actually took the formless globe of, of the earth and started bringing into it mountains and water and photosynthesis and life? Who was that? It was Jesus. Okay, so Jesus was actively involved in creation and all of it wasn't only created by him, but for him. Meaning that everything in creation was aiming to, to be this, this attraction point, this arrow to him and what he was doing. All the stars were created to bring God glory, to point to the fact that this is the power of what God can do that we see in the cross. The, the lilies, the, the flowers that God creates, were created so that one day God could say, you know, you freak out about what you're wearing and, and how much clothes you have. But look at these. If God can do this with a flower, what can he do with you? And he, he invents birds. Why? Just because he loves birds? Well, yeah, he's creative, but, he, but they are created for him so that he could say, you know what, do these birds worry about where their next meal is coming from? No, because God takes care of him. He's going to take care of you. Everything was created by him and for him, including trees, which Jesus creates knowing that one day this is going to be able to be used in lumber. Lumber that was going to be able to create beautiful things and wonderful things and terrible things like crosses. Cross, a cross that he would actually have to climb on when Jesus is inventing and created the, the elements that we see in the periodic table of elements, and he comes up with iron, he's knowing that one day this is going to be fashioned, not into amazing, beautiful things that we utilize and use for good, but also things that are used for torture, like spikes driven into his wrists. Jesus is the creator in creation. But not only is the creator in creation, we also see that he's on beyond that. Jesus was the future hope. Because after creation falls and everything goes sideways, God doesn't kick everything to the curb. We know that because he was already before creation preparing the redemptive mission that he was going to do. But he was actually the future hope. Genesis 3.15 says that, yes, Satan is someone who's going to constantly be nipping at our ankles. But there's going to come one through humanity. He's talking to Adam and Eve. God is. And he says to Adam and Eve, there's going to come one through your line, through humanity, that will crush Satan's head. He will be dead. He will be... The, the, the sin element that has, that has taken place and come upon you as a curse will be destroyed by this one through you. And, and sometimes people think that it comes out of nowhere when we get to Genesis 12.3, when all of a sudden God is talking to Abraham and saying to Abraham, all of the nations are going to be blessed through you. But it's not out of nowhere because they're already sitting on the, the promise about Jesus in Genesis 3.15. Salvation is going to come from God through humanity. Abraham, it's going to be your family that, it's going to, that this salvation is going to come from. This is where, where uh, God, Paul says in the New Testament that God was preaching the gospel to Abraham. He's telling the good news that this is going to be, this salvation of mankind is going to come through you. You're, you're, you and your whole family were pagans. 
but God is going to do this amazing thing through you. Through you. Now, that's kind of cool. And you might look at that and say, well, that's great. But again, that's, you know, maybe God saying these things. It's not Jesus right there. It's talking about Jesus, but it's a future thing, right? I mean, these were, this is God, the Heavenly Father's voice, not Jesus' voice. Or is it? We see that not only is Jesus um, doing all these things in the Bible, but he's also vocal. Jesus himself said in John 5, 37, and the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form. In other words, Mankind has never heard the voice of the Heavenly Father except for a few exceptions. Like when you have the baptism of Jesus, you hear the Heavenly Father basically saying, yes, this is him. But outside of that, we have the preference of God to speak to humanity through his son. John Calvin was big on this. He said that God's absolute preference to speak with fallen humanity in the Old Testament and the New Testament is through the son. And so when you see the voice of God in the Old Testament, Who is speaking that voice? Jesus. Jesus is God's mouthpiece. When you hear the audible voice of God in the the Bible, it is coming from Jesus. When you see Adam and Eve in the garden and, and God is talking to them, who is talking to them? Jesus. Not only that, but God is, uh, Jesus is physically there. He's present. Uh, we see that, that um, um, Jonathan Edwards, an uh, early uh, Puritan philosopher and theologian and pastor, he said that when we see the description in Genesis of God walking in the garden, this isn't like, again, just... You know, that's, again, what my brain goes to. I want to, I'm imagining this ginormous foot, and you look up there, and there's this long, flowing, white, flowy beard thing, Right? That's not the biblical picture that we see. The biblical picture we see, because Jesus said no one seen, has seen God the Father. So when we see descriptions of people walking with him and talking with him, who, if it says that they're talking to God, who is it that they're talking to? Jesus. Jesus was present in the Old Testament. He was present with Moses. Um, in Exodus, uh, we see in Exodus uh, 24, uh, verses 10 through 11, this is where God is confirming the covenant he makes with 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 Moses. And Moses is up there, Moses and a couple other guys, and it says that they, they saw God and they spent time with him, ate and drank with him. Now again, scripture is very clear. If you see the heavenly father, the, the, it's your toast. God's preferred way to communicate with mankind through a person is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. So who is Moses hanging out with and eating and drinking with in Exodus 24? Jesus. Um, in Exodus uh, 33, 11, the, the description there is that God spoke to Moses face to face like friends. Who was Moses talking to face to face? Whose face was he seeing? Jesus's. He is there with Jesus. And this helps help us understand some of the goofy passages in the Old Testament that just kind of are weird and don't make sense. Like when we see things like the angel of the Lord. Um, throughout the Old Testament scriptures and New Testament scriptures, you see angels, right? And people have a, a pretty common reaction to these angels. They freak out and they, they it's just whatever, I don't, I've never seen an angel, but whatever it looks like is terrifying and just, it's otherworldly. And people, they get down on their hands and knees, they start to worship, and the angels commonly are going, don't do that. Stop it. Don't worship me. I'm just a messenger, blah, blah, blah. Except for this person. The angel of the Lord, when you see that phrase, the angel of the Lord, that is a, that is a title. 
And you see that showing up all throughout the Old Testament. And when this person shows up, the angel of the Lord, he has divine power. He's worshipped by people and, not, and he doesn't stop them from worshipping him. In fact, God the Father says that my name, explains that my name is in him. So who is the angel of the Lord? Who is divine? Who is God's interaction with humanity? Most theologians who study scripture say that's Jesus too. That's Jesus. So when we see the angel of the Lord talking with Moses at the burning of the bush, it's Jesus talking to him. When we see Jacob wrestling with an angel, the angel of the Lord, and the next day he realized that he was wrestling with God, who was he wrestling with? Jesus. Which, okay, top 10 things that would be amazing to do, wrestling with Jesus, right? Except for that he handicapped Jacob after that, so that probably would have been a bad call. But that, it's the angel of the Lord. It's the angel of the Lord who's Jesus. So Jesus is present in Scripture. In the Old Testament, he is there. But not only that, but Jesus was also anticipated. The, the physical coming of God, Emmanuel, God with us, which had been taking place from the beginning, was going to come into a new manifestation. See, Jesus is the one who speaks the words to the prophets, telling them, this is what the Heavenly Father is saying. Tell this to the Hebrew people. Tell this to Pharaoh. Tell this to the... It, it's Jesus' words that, that are going out over and over again. And Jesus' words laying out, okay, in Leviticus, there needs to be a sacrifice. The relationship between you and God has been broken. Something has to happen. This goat has to be sacrificed because death has come into this world through your sin and now death needs to pay for it. But he is always making it clear through the prophets, my desire is not for the blood of blood of, of, of rams and of goats. The point is not the sacrifice. This can't completely cover over your sin. This is just a covering it's an atonement. It's almost like a placeholder for something that's going to happen down the road. Every religious and religiously minded and spiritual Hebrew person knew scripture to say, this is something that we do to connect ourselves with God, to remind us that we need to come and make things right. But we know that it's going to be his grace that's ultimately going to do it down the road through something else. And the prophets, Jesus' words through them, kept on saying, and he's coming, and he's coming. And Isaiah 53, and he's going to suffer He's going to suffer and die. He's going to suffer and die as a righteous person for you. Jesus was anticipated. And so you get to the end of the Old Testament with a bunch of people who know this is going to happen and they're waiting for it, but they're longing for it and they don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but they know it's coming down the road. Author uh, Charles Drew put it this way. Lovers cannot bear to be apart. Phone calls and long letters do not satisfy the longing to be together. They only intensify it. The Old Testament appearances of the eternal son are like those phone calls and letters. Pause. Have you, do you remember, if, if, you, if you're married or if you're dating someone, like, right now, you know that it, it just stinks. Dating stinks. Because it's just like, ah, it's like, we're always, you know, you, I, I long for the day when, when we don't have to say goodnight. I long for the day when we don't have to say goodbye. Okay, the Old Testament appearances of the eternal son are like those phone calls and letters. They are temporary, incomplete, and distant designed to awaken in us a longing for God's permanent, intimate, full, and gracious appearance in the incarnation. Yesterday, this couple got married, and they, and they were just absolutely ecstatic. And they're ecstatic. I had a chance to go through their counseling. All right. <laughs> they're ecstatic because this is, they're finally here. They finally came to that point, to the point where they could actually no longer have to say goodbye, goodnight. 
They're, they're now where, where you go, I'm going. I'm not going to have to text you and call you to stay in connection with you. I'm, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be living with you. And that, that, that look on their face is the picture that you should understand. Yeah, and there's Katie photobombing in the back. Um, that's the picture that you should understand the Old Testament to be. Coming to a point of, it's going to happen. He's going to come. And he finally did. And we see in the beginning of the Gospels, the beginning of the New Testament, the fact that in this little no-name town in Bethlehem, which Jesus told the prophet Micah that was going, that's where he was going to go to, it happens. And he comes. And the spiritually-minded people say, this is him. This is him. I knew it. I knew he was going to. It's been so long, but this is what everything has been leading to. It's been leading to him. He was anticipated and then he was born. He was born, and, and he did, wasn't just born, and then, and then the next day he says, okay, I need to go to the cross and pay for all of mankind. No, instead, we see Jesus doing something. He starts his, his ministry right around 30, when he starts to do three years of ministry, where he starts to show us God. Jesus is saying things to, to the, the religious leaders, like, don't you see? Don't you see that all the prophets have been saying this? You've all taught, you've been, you're big fans of Moses, which is great, but you're big fans of Moses to the detriment of understanding the reality of what Moses was saying. Moses was talking about me. I was the one giving Moses the words. Jesus is communicating and conveying, this has all been leading to me. Why is Jesus so frustrated with what he's seeing? It's because they have tweaked and twisted everything he taught in the Old Testament. And he teaches us what God's like, and he shows us who God is. Hebrews 1 says that in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many times in many ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe The sun is the exact radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is communicating, I and the Father am one, John 10 says. And and everything needs to be understood through the lens of me. If you want to see God, look at me. If you want to hear God, listen to me. If you don't understand what I said in the Old Testament, listen to it through the lens of who I am and what I'm about to do and what he was about to do was to actually go to the next level by taking my place. Jesus sets up a system of high priests who perform sacrifices that could not completely cover, cover over sin. They could cover over, but they couldn't do away with sin because that, that lamb didn't do anything. That goat didn't do anything. That ram didn't do anything. That person did it. Jesus loves humanity. So he climbs on a cross and he takes my sin and your sin. He dies in our place. He becomes a sacrificial lamb. He becomes the high priest presenting the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 2 says, So he had to be made like his brothers in every way. He had to be human, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God in order to make atonement for the sins of the people. And John, one of Jesus' best friends, said this, And love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He did that for us. He did that for you. All all of human history was leading to that point. And now 2,000 years from that point, we're still living with the implications of that because that wasn't the end of the story. It wasn't, I'm going to save you and then we'll catch up at heaven one day. I'm going to save you and I'm going to start a movement that you're going to be a part of. Jesus moves to start to change the entire world. And and you could see this from where the church... 
He has this people group of the Hebrew people telling them the promise way back in the earlier promise that I'm going to impact the entire world through this people group, this Hebrew people. And the Hebrew people start to pick up all these outsiders along the way. And then Jesus dies on the cross and it explodes. And Jesus says, this is going to all nations, all kinds of people, every kind of backdrop. This is going to all of them and they're all going to have the implication of this and it spreads to the entire world to the point that we here in Illinois, in Manuka, Illinois, where we can't drink the water, we're here in Illinois and we're still impacting impacted by the implications of that. And it's not done yet. If you, I mean, the, the end of the book gets to the fact that Jesus is returning and restoring. He's making all things new, as we said in that Bible verse. And some of us really would wish this could happen today. Jesus, come back today. Just come back today. But if you're breathing, he's not done with you. If you're still walking on this planet, if you still have lung, breath in your lungs, that means that he's not done with you, and he's not done with this planet. He's still changing the world. But we have the promise and the hope that he's going to ultimately be the one who's going to restore all of it. So when Jesus is walking on that road to Emmaus, and he says, you've seen what I've done in taking the sins of the entire world. Now do you see that this was all about me? This was all about me. All about the work. You want to know the power of God? It was what I did on the cross. It was all leading to that. And now everything is changing because of that. So now in 2016, we have to ask the question, so what? So what? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for today? I believe that this changes every single thing. If Jesus is who he said he was, and he was, he's actually predominantly over scripture, that he is the key to understanding scripture, that in one word, if we wanted to understand the Bible, if the one word was Jesus, that changes everything. And I'm just, let me give you three ways that it does. And the three ways are three questions. The, the first question is this, and that we struggle with. What is the purpose of my life? What is the purpose of my life? Is it my job? Is it my kids? Is it my family? Is it, is it making money? Is it leaving a legacy? What is the purpose of my life? What am I supposed to do with it vocationally right now? What's the purpose? Every one of us struggles with this. And even though that, that question and even the answer is difficult, the solution, again, is, is simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. If Jesus is who he said he was, and if you're in him, that means that the Paul says that you're a new creation. Now again, if the whole Bible's about Jesus, and Paul says, if you're in Jesus, you're a new creation, that should send off flags. Flags back to the first creation, which Jesus did. What did Jesus do in the first creation? He sees darkness and he brings light. He sees, for, he sees formlessness, formlessness and, 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 and just lack of, of order and brings order. And ultimately, he gets to the point where he creates and he creates humanity in God's own image, in his image. He's the exact image of, of, of God. We're created in his image. And so all of a sudden we go back and if, if what's the purpose of my life? If I'm a new creation, then I'm, I'm reflecting the same creation Jesus did back in the beginning. I look in my world and I say, where is the darkness? And where do I need to bring light? I look in my world and I say, what is out of order? What is absolutely fraying apart at the seams? And what do I need to say in God's name and in, for G- in Jesus' name and God's glory? I'm going to bring order into this. And, and ultimately, looking at every my, part of my life and say, what is defined by me and my definition of me and my worldview of me and, and my, my desire for me? And how does that mesh with God's image of me? Because again, at the end of creation is we become, humanity comes into God's own image, created in his image. That's the purpose of our life. Above and beyond where you work. Where you work is temporary. 
The purpose of your life is to be the new creation where light comes into darkness, beauty and productivity comes into formlessness, and bit by bit we're created more and more like Jesus. Is this a definition or description of your life? Do you see that happening in your life? Are you floating on your own perspective or are you floating on his? That's the purpose. The second, the second question that we all struggle with is why is there so much suffering in the world? If Jesus is the answer to the end, if Jesus is, is what the whole Bible is about, we have a, a description of why. The description is that we see back in the very beginning that our brokenness with mankind, with God, between mankind and God has broken everything. And from that point on, everything breaks. Everything has an expiration date on it. Our lives, our health, our jobs, our relationships, everything is not going to be good for good. Everything breaks. And, that's, and suffering comes from that. You're either the victimizer, your suffering is because of your own decisions, or you're the victim. You're suffering because someone else's decisions that are in rebellion from God. But our suffering is swimming in that pool over and over and over again. But see, the cool thing is this. If Jesus is the answer for the entire Bible, then that's not the end of the story because we realize that before time, Jesus was working to enter into that suffering. Before time, he had a plan to step into it. That we have the promise that he's ultimately going to destroy it. And we have the reality that in spite of the fact that Jesus was God, he suffered. That suffering wasn't devoid of him. That suffering wasn't kept from him. That the Son of God suffered. And not only did he suffer, he suffered for things that he didn't do. He suffered un- with in- unjustly. But we have the hope in Revelation 21 that one day... This is the, the Bible verse that we gave Bill. That one day he will make all things new. Why is there so much suffering? Because of sin. But that's not the end of the story. And whatever suffering you're going through, it's legitimate. But you have someone who will walk through that suffering with you. When Jesus was on the cross, suffering more than any human has ever suffered, he lifted the words, he borrowed the words from David. God, why have you forsaken me? God, Why? We know that we have someone who can empathize with our suffering. You are not in this alone. Third question. How do I know that Jesus is the only way? The way that you um, answer that question is the way that you answer any other question. You, you, you find where the evidence leads and you follow it. This is, this is how great atheists and little elementary school kids have found Jesus. They look at the evidence at hand and they follow the lead of that evidence Um, One thing is clear, though, that Jesus is not simply a way. He won't let us do that. We can't can't say that Jesus is a good moral teacher because he he actually says that, no, actually, um, I'm more than a moral teacher. I'm the fulfillment of it. I'm, I'm not simply a good person. I'm the perfect person. I'm not just a man or a good teacher. I am God. I and the Father are one. And so he doesn't give us the allowance to kind of just place him um, uh, just as, as, as a part of a, a bigger scheme. He is the only way. Jesus said, I am the only way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And for me, in studying world religions, I, I, I think that there's some amazing things that world religions have to say, but Jesus is the one who puts the puzzle piece together the best. And when you look throughout the scriptures, you see how everything is leading to him without any wiggle room. When I, w- I was writing and, uh, when I was getting prepared for this and I just kind of started ranting. So I'm going to read you guys my rant, okay? Um, 
I don't post rants, but this is a rant that just, as I was studying this, it just came to me that there's just like, this is the reality that Jesus is the epicenter of God's work in history. All of civilization's questions are pointing to him, and most of civilization, civilization doesn't even know it. All of our struggles have his solution written all over them, and yet we search elsewhere. You want to know what the Bible is about? Is it about sin? No. It has sin in it, but it's not about sin. Is the Bible about all humanity and our redemption? No. But we're an integral part. The key player in this book is not a theology, an ideology, or a manifesto. It is an account of the fact that God is awesome. And we know that because of Jesus. That God is creative. And we know that because of Jesus. That God's spoken to struggle and promised a savior. And we know that because of Jesus. That pain and curse and sin are not the end of the story. And we know that because of Jesus. That life itself begs for a way to live superior to the self-absorbed toxicity that humanity is immersed in. And we know that way because of Jesus. That there are a lot of brilliant people from a diverse band of religions which have been built up to answer life's most important question. And although they have intelligent observations on the condition of mankind, the key answer that leaves them searching is the one we have found in Jesus. That this Jesus is the King of Kings, so we live our life the way he calls us to. He is compassionate and merciful, so we reach out and love. He never underplays truth, but speaks with all truth, so we could be honest and live with integrity. He sovereignly loves the lost in this world and is in control of the end of history, so we avoid becoming pessimistic, but rather boldly live with hope. He won't be reduced to an equal place on the shelf next to Buddha, Muhammad, your grandma, or your favorite author. He won't share the passion of your heart with your stuff, your lover, or your political party. He is the indisputable king of kings from beginning to end. And he calls us to lay down everything and follow him. That's Jesus. Amen? Now here's the thing. This Jesus is the Jesus of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Testament of your life. Have you surrendered him to him? Are you living surrendered to him today? Are you distant from him today? We're going to close in just a song or two. But what I want to encourage you to do right now is not just take this in, but to respond to it. We're going to have people, a couple of us are going to be up front. Some of us are going to be around the back of the room. If you would like prayer because you and Jesus feel distant, go to one of these people and just pray. They'll pray for you. You need prayer? You need to come close to Jesus? Make that happen today. Don't let today pass without proximity to Jesus being something that you walk out of here knowing you have. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. And if you, the people who are praying, if you guys can take your spots. And during the song, I want to encourage you to come to the altar.